Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm excited to share an episode with you that I think you will enjoy a lot. This week, I was joined by Paul Brandis. He is an award-winning independent member of the White House Press Corps. He is also a Washington columnist for The Week and moderates panels for the magazine in Washington and around the U.S. on topics like cyberbullying, energy, and Europe's economic crisis. He has lectured at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and his career spans network television, Wall Street, and several years as a foreign correspondent based in Moscow. He has traveled all around the world reporting. He has written quite a few books, but today we talk about his two Kennedy-related ones. So without further ado, here is our conversation. Here I am joined by author of Jackie, The Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O and Countdown to Dallas, Paul Brandis. Thank you, Paul, so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. But before we get started, you have (laughs) the most impressive resume. Do you mind to let the audience know a little bit about your career background? Well, it's a little bit uh, of everything. And first of all, thanks so much for having me. I mean, I've worked in, uh, I suppose, one thing people always ask me about is, uh, I worked in uh, Moscow for five years. I was uh, posted at the American Embassy there for a little while, and then I left that and became a foreign correspondent for a couple of years. Very exciting time to be in uh, Moscow. Not so much now, but it was a ter- just terrifically exciting. When I was there, when I came back to the United States, had a couple of interesting job offers. I wound up working at uh, Bloomberg and then CNBC, went to work on Wall Street for a couple of years after that, got married, came back to Washington where I grew up and uh, have spent a couple of years as a full-blown member of the White House press corps. I don't go to the White House every day. It sort of depends on, you know, if there's an event or something there. And there's there's often just uh, the briefing. Uh, the president doesn't appear that talking about President Biden. He does not appear in public all that much. So there's not a great uh, reason to go there every day. But uh, but that's what I do. And I write uh, columns and books and uh, keynote speaking and just do a fair amount of consulting and uh, blah, blah, blah. It's just, a uh, you know, it's been interesting and uh uh, I've enjoyed it. I appreciate it. <laughs> totally not blah, blah, blah. That is the most exciting thing ever. That's just so cool. So thank you so much for letting us know all that. Sure. Um, so today, though, since this is Kennedy-based, it's clear that you have an interest in the Kennedys, as I do. Where did that interest start for you, or where did it come from? Well, I've had an interest in the presidency for, I suppose, my entire life. I, and that's probably why I've been a, a White House correspondent for such a long time. I mean, it's really just a thrill, even after all this time, Allison. I know that you were at the the Easter egg roll a couple of weeks ago. It's fun to go to the White House for any reason. And when you walk through the Northwest Gate, you go into the briefing room, which is connected to the West Wing, and you think, boy, this is where uh, Franklin Roosevelt swam. Uh, the briefing room, of course, is over the old swimming pool. You know, it's where, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson walked and Lincoln pondered his uh, great decisions of the Civil War on and on and on. So to be in that building is just kind of a spine tingling thing every single time. And I always tell people the minute you don't start to feel that way about being in the White House, it's probably time for you to consider doing something else. It's that special uh, a place. So I think it probably uh, emanated from all of that. I mean, the interest in the, the Kennedys was 
so interesting just because, uh, well, Jacqueline Kennedy, who I know we're going to talk about, was such a fascinating first lady. And Kennedy himself uh, was always interesting, not just because of the, you know, the charisma, which, of course, there was a dark side to him, which everybody knows. But uh, they were such a fascinating couple. And I think the fact that they were there for such a short period of time, it ended so tragically, I think that's part of the interest, too. I mean, it was an incredible while it lasted, but uh, they didn't even have three years, which is just a, a tragedy. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Oh, my gosh, I just so echo everything you said about the White House. There's something so... I mean, it almost makes me emotional every time I've, I mean, I've, I say every time, I've only been there a few times, but when I go in there, every, it's just like, there's so much history in those walls, and it's it's truly just an honor to be able to walk walk where they, they all walked. It really is, and uh, for people who have not taken, uh, the, you know, the tours were closed during the pandemic, but uh, they started them up again, uh, I guess about a year ago, and when you take the tour now, uh, you see mostly the things on the state floor. I mean, the East Room and the, the Blue Green, the Red Rooms and so forth and the state dining room. But if you're there when the president is coming and going on Marine One, which is uh, out in the South Lawn, I call it the backyard, uh, sometimes sometimes they will uh, take a tour group out there and you can watch the helicopter land or arrive, which is really a cool thing, and of course, and when you're on the South Lawn, you can see the Rose Garden and the 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 part of the Oval Office itself. But if you haven't taken the tour, uh, you should. You have to go through your member of Congress to do it for security reasons. But uh, all it's your it's a public it's your house. It's a people's house, and I encourage everyone listening to if you have not done it. Uh, please come to Washington and do it. You won't forget it. Absolutely. I completely agree. I'm actually, because you said that, I'm going to put a link in the description of this episode to, uh, they, there's like a site where you can link up with your uh, representative and stuff and get in a White House tour. So I'll put that in the description of this episode as well, just so people can go. Um, okay, so I want to chat about both of your Kennedy-related books, but let's start with your newest one, Countdown to Dallas. What caused you to want to write in-depth about Kennedy and Oswald and the circumstances that brought them to Dallas at the same time? Well, the 50th anniversary of assassination, as you know, was 2013, a decade ago. Mm. And the 50th anniversary of anything always brings out, uh, you know, there were a ton of books and TV specials and that kind of thing. History is never static. And in the 10 years since the 50th anniversary, there have been about 55,000 pages of government documents released that pertain to the assassination, the period before and uh, you know the day of and aftermath and all of that. A lot of those documents were CIA related, were FBI related, uh, State Department related, just a variety of things. And you have to examine all of those. What impact, if any, has those 55 pages had on the overall narrative of the assassination? So that's one reason why I decided to do it. I think the history needed uh, a freshening up. I mean, people are still talking and writing books about the, you know, the Lincoln assassination. So history is never static. And uh, so that's why I did it. And uh, it just turned out to be just a, what a fascinating topic. Absolutely. Extremely fascinating. Why do you feel like conspiracy theorists kind of overlook the obvious dark background of Oswald when it comes to linking him to the assassination? Well, there are two reasons. One is that it was such a vast crime. Uh, 
just an earth-shattering crime of just immense proportions. It just literally was the crime that shook the world. I think it's hard for people to believe, and I empathize with this, by the way, uh, it's hard for people to process the fact that one person of Oswald's character, he was 24 years old, a mediocre, you know, good for nothing, and we could go into his job history and his failed marriage and twice court-martialed in the Marines and on and on and on, his violent uh, history uh, prior to the assassination. Uh, it's hard for people to process, Allison, that one single person with that kind of character could, in the blink of an eye, just erase the most powerful person in the world off the face of the earth in just a couple of seconds. It was so quick, so easy, so casual that for people to think that it could, it has to be more than just one guy doing that. It was just too big of a crime. That's the first reason. It's just too much for people to process that one person could have done something like that. The other reason, I think, is a broader cultural observation, and that is that I think we Americans have always had a fascination with conspiracies in general. And there's a portion in my book, in fact, where I talk about this. It's not just the Kennedy assassination. There have been surveys that show that a large number of Americans, and depending on the issue, anywhere from 25% to 40% or whatever the number is, there are large numbers of Americans who believe that everything from uh, Pearl Harbor was a conspiracy, 9-11 uh, was a conspiracy, the moon landing, of course, uh, that was a hoax. Some people think even the Princess Diana car crash or the Oklahoma City bombing and 1995, you know, UFOs and Roswell and all that. Uh, there are lots of people who believe in conspiracies of all sorts. The Kennedy assassination was the granddaddy of them all, though, simply because there were so many anomalies that uh, that, uh, that that still seem odd today and don't quite make sense. But it's not just Kennedy, though. It's all those other things that I mentioned. Just we Americans in general. Uh, like conspiracies, we have a distrust of authority, distrust of government, and those are the kind of conditions I think that can uh, fuel conspiracy theories. Mm, absolutely. That's so fascinating. So obviously this book, this project took so much research. What is something that you learned about this that you found surprising yourself? Well, when I was working in uh, Russia, uh, I actually went to Minsk, which is uh, in the country today called Belarus, where Oswald lived. And I tried to get into his apartment. Uh, I couldn't. The pri you know, private family living there, and they get, I think, you know, tired of people knocking on the door. But I could certainly see the building and the area in which he lived and everything. And uh, to me, that was a fascinating period of his a life, and I think it's important for people to understand when they when people study the assassination, they tend to study you know events uh, that happened that day during those six seconds or in the hours ahead of time. I think you have to go way back and really examine, uh, uh, as I mentioned, the life of Oswald, who he really was. So I learned a lot about that. I knew a lot about him ahead of time, but, uh, you know, there's always more to learn. Uh, when he was living in the Soviet Union, he thought that he would be, uh, you know, uh, welcomed as 
some kind of a you know a defecting a hero, an anti-American guy who uh, wanted to live in this workers' uh, paradise. But uh, he was he was kind of an interesting figure for a little while. And then when people realized that he didn't really have that much to offer, he was not regarded as that intelligent, did not have a lot of uh, secrets to share, that kind of thing. Uh, they banished him, the KGB and the Soviet government banished him to Minsk, Minsk, where he worked a menial job in a factory. That's the best he could do. That's the best. Uh, that's all they wanted to offer him, which was a sign that they did not regard him in any particular light. He thought because he was an American, he was in the Marines and all this stuff that he deserved to live in Moscow and he deserved to go to university there and study philosophy and all of this stuff. And they said, no, we don't think you're, you know, we don't really see much value in you. But if you want to stay here, go to Minsk and uh, take this uh, boring uh, factory job. So to me, that was one thing that was uh, just interesting, just how little uh, how little they held him in their regard after he uh, tried to not after he tried to defect after he after he defected in the fall of 1959. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. That's amazing that you got to go there, too, truly. Well, a fantastic book. I will definitely link that in the description of this episode. Everybody get it. Let's talk about Jackie now. So I love the period that you covered of her life, that in-between between Kennedy and Onassis. And honestly, I told you before, I learned so much about her from your book and the podcast series that goes along with it. So what made you decide to focus on this particular portion of her life? Well, she's a fascinating figure. and. Most of the books about uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, and there are obviously a lot of them, focus on either the White House years or the years when she was with Onassis or working in the publishing industry or as you know, the mother of Caroline and John. And all of those are interesting. But to me, I was looking for something a little bit different, a little bit uh, uncovered or relatively uncovered. And the five-year period when she was on her own, to me, was the most interesting period of all. I mean, why should she be defined as merely the wife of these, you know, Aristotle and Assis, John F. Kennedy, obviously two of the wealthiest, most uh, powerful men of the 20th century. Why should a woman be defined by who she married. She was a fascinating woman uh, in her own right. In the five-year period in between her marriages that were bookended by her marriages to these two guys, to me, that was just a, the most fascinating period of all because Jackie on her own, we get to see the real Jackie, who she really was, as opposed to just, well, I'll say just, as opposed to just a first lady or the wife of this uh, you know, Greek uh, business tycoon. Jackie on her own, Jackie the single mother trying to raise these two kids, Jackie trying to recover from the most uh, horrible trauma that a person could possibly encounter. That's the Jackie that uh, I think needed to be explored. Absolutely. And you just did such a beautiful job of humanizing her because like you said, she, you know, had these labels all through her life and this period of her life was kind of undefined, you know, to society and it just humanizes her. It makes her <laughs> like us, you know, which she was. So one thing that stuck out to me the most, which this is something that fascinates me beyond, but really stuck out to me is your take on Camelot. 
And I honestly could not agree more with your conclusion that you make about the coin term and Jackie's solidification of that term. So for the audience, can you share the reason and significance for Camelot as you do in the book? Well, exactly a week after the assassination, it was November the 29th, 1963, she's up at Hyannis, and she wanted to tell someone a story. And she chose Theodore White of Life magazine at the time. Life magazine was just the magazine in America, just an enormously uh, powerful, visible magazine. Millions of people subscribe to it, just an enormous, uh, prestigious platform. She, she chose him. So he goes up to Hyannis from New York in a terrible storm. It was a nor'easter. Uh, his mother had a heart attack that night. He chose to go see Jackie instead. And the story that Jackie told him, she had never spoken with anyone outside her family before of the assassina assassination. But that night, she uh, she told all to White. And if you look at his handwritten notes from that night, she talks about the murder and the Texas sun and his brains are in my lap and just the most horrible description of what happened. And White, of course, wrote all this up. But at the end of the discussion, which lasted for a couple of hours, Jackie said, you know, there's one other thing that I wanted to say. And she talks about, and I think this story is uh, fairly well known, but the backstory is what I find interesting. Uh, Allison she said, oh, at night in the White House, we would play these records, and Jack loved the soundtrack from Camelot, which at the time was a had been playing on Broadway for about a year or so. So it was only, it even, it, it intersected with the Kennedy White House for only a very short period, and yet she claimed that uh, it was an integral part of the Kennedy White House at Camelot, and Jack was the shining armor, and of course, she was Lady uh, Guinevere. But of course, if you know the story of Camelot, it was actually filled with uh, betrayal and infidelity and things like that, But uh, which, of course, could describe the private side of the Kennedy uh, marriage. I mean, he was obviously uh, not faithful to his uh, wife. Everybody uh, clearly uh, knows that. She wanted to paint him in more heroic, chivalrous terms. And Camelot was what she chose to do. That was the vehicle. Obviously, Jackie knew that her husband had this uh, uh, side that was uh, uh, sex. Uh, Kennedy was obviously uh, obsessed with uh, sex and uh, bedded all kinds of women. I think we have to acknowledge that. She knew that uh, and nevertheless, a week after the assassination, she knew that all kinds of books and articles would be written about him, about the assassination. Essentially, she wanted to control the narrative as best she could. So she invented, I'm not being critical here, I'm saying this is what she did. She invented this uh, image of him, Camelot, again, and the chivalry and the Knights of the Round Table and all of that, uh, in a way in which she hoped would uh, shape his image for years to come. And even today, six decades later, when you hear people talk about the Kennedy White House, they say the Camelot years or the, you know, the Camelot administration was also you know, gallant 
and, and all of that. Uh, so in one sense, she uh, she succeeded. Of course, the, 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 the bad stuff about Kennedy's uh, private side wound up coming out uh, anyway. But to some extent, she succeeded in uh, seizing the narrative, portraying her husband, uh, how she uh, wanted to. Um, but even, as I mentioned in the book, I think uh, JFK himself, who had a wonderful sense of humor, uh, would have probably uh, scoffed at the, the at the Camelot uh, description, but but that's what she did. Again, this was just a, a week after the assassination. She was reeling. She wanted her story to be told, and this is what uh, this is the story that she told. Yeah, and honestly, like in her grief, I've just always thought that was a brilliant solidification of the legacy that she wanted left. I, my audience says this, but I always say she was like a publicity god. Like she right. somehow just right. took a hold of that, and I don't know. I've always found, found that so fascinating about her. One thing that you really explore in this period of her life is her dating life. And I found it really fascinating because, you know, another thing, people just don't focus on it or cover it much. Um, were there any partners that you were actually surprised to find that she had in your research? Well, when President Kennedy was killed, she was only 34 years old. 34. Imagine that. Uh, the most famous woman in the country by far. Uh, perhaps in the world, people say, well, maybe Queen Elizabeth or Elizabeth Taylor. Um, I don't think so. I think that Jacqueline Kennedy surpassed uh, even them. Uh, she was a grieving woman uh, raising two very young children under the harshest of spotlights. Everyone noticed everything that she did, what she wore, where she went, just everything. And yet, uh, in those conditions, again, under this incredibly harsh spotlight, uh, she tried to rebuild her private life. And she went on, I suppose we could call them uh, dates. Uh, you know, there's one incident where she, on a double date with her sister um, and Marlon Brando, they went to, at what was the time, the Jockey Club, at I think at uh, 20th and Massachusetts Avenue uh, here in uh, Washington. Now, Brando, at the time, obviously a huge Hollywood uh, star, Academy Award winner. Uh, he was in town to talk to, I think, uh, um, lawmakers and some other organizations about uh, Indian rights, rights for Native uh, Indians. And, uh, and for some reason, uh, that led him to uh, this uh, dinner with uh, Jackie uh, with uh, with Jackie and uh, Lee, uh, his uh, her sister, and I think uh, Brando's agent. And I don't know if you could call it a date or not. I, I don't, they went to dinner. That much is known. And when somebody was tipped off that the four of them were there, some photographers showed up. They wound up going out the back door, went back to Jackie's uh, place. And here's where you can believe what you want. Uh, there are some stories that say. That uh, you know they were uh, they put on a Wayne Newton record or Danka Shen and they were uh, dancing a little bit in the apartment. This uh, was in February 1964, so it would have been about three months after the assassination. And again, depending on uh, who you want to believe, uh, Brando made a pass at uh, Jackie. Uh, she refused, uh, and he was embarrassed and uh, left. And there are two things about that. Again, believe it or not, uh, Clint Hill, who was uh, famously Jackie's 
Secret Service agent, of course, in Dallas. He was the guy who uh, jumped on the back of the car on uh, Elm Street. Uh, I asked him about that particular incident. He was uh, outside the house that night, uh, and he denied that anything like that uh, happened. So that's Clint Hill. Uh, but then years later, uh, Marlon Brando wrote an autobiography and he talked about that in his autobiography, but then one of the editors at, uh, I forget the publishing house, either Random House or uh, Scribner's, I forget, but whoever the, whoever the publishing house was, there was an editor who happened to be friends with the Kennedy family, and he read that passage where Brando described the encounter with Jackie and said, you better take that out, there's going to be trouble if you don't, and Brando, under pressure, took that out of the book, and if you look at the Brando's autobiography today, of course, there's no mention uh, of that. So, so for that reason, I kind of hedged as to whether this took place. Maybe I mean they clearly had the dinner. There's no question about that. There's nothing wrong with that. But whether they, you know, he made a pass at her or whatever. I mean, who knows? But it certainly makes for an interesting story. So that's Marlon Brando, and uh, then there are other. Uh, stories how after she moved to New York uh, later in 1964, she began to go out on the town. She Her mourning period uh, lasted a year, and then she started to kind of show up at events and galleries and restaurants and this kind of thing. And, you know, and in New York, by the way, which was uh, you know, plenty of famous people there and the A-list and all that, she was above all of that. If there was an A-list in New York, she was in, she was an AAA list, triple A. Just she was the person. She would walk into a restaurant or a gallery or anything. The room would fall silent. It was just incredible. So again, she's trying to you know rebuild her personal life and socialize with people while everybody is watching everything. So it was, uh, so imagine trying to live like that again, 34, 35 years old. And she would, uh, she would go out to events with escorts, people like Mike Nichols, who later, of course, the famous uh, film director went on to marry Diane Sawyer, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, she was close friends with the uh, Truman Capote, who was obviously gay. That was not a romance, but, uh, and, and other people too. She dated, and this was, I think, her first uh, true romance after the, the after the assassination. Uh, a guy named John Warnicky, who was an architect, a very prominent architect. Uh, John F. Kennedy knew him. In fact, they had dinner at one point in, I think, San Francisco in the late '50s. So they knew each other. In fact, um, when Kennedy was in the White House and Jackie was trying to uh, preserve famous federal buildings around Lafayette Square, which is across from the White House, uh, Kennedy remembered that Warnicke was a prominent architect and uh, asked him to the White House, where he said, can you work with Mrs. Kennedy on this preservation project? And they did. So that was how the relationship started. And after the assassination, uh, Warnicke was tapped to develop the permanent gravesite for President Kennedy. Of course, he was buried hastily three days after the assassination. But the more permanent grave where he was moved to in 1967 was designed by him. If you go to Arlington today, you'll see his work. So they dated for about uh, 
two years. Uh, he was a very prominent uh, guy. They got along quite well. He had some financial issues, though, which didn't sit too well with her. Uh, so there was uh, Warnicke and then, of course, Aristotle Onassis, who was always kind of behind the scenes. They socialized together. And when Onassis was the uh, the owner of uh, Olympic Airways, the Greek airline, it started flying to New York in the mid-60s, which gave him an excuse to have an apartment at the Pierre Hotel on 61st Street, which was about uh, 24 blocks south of Jackie. So there'd be dinner parties and so forth. So they socialized before they got uh, married, but it was, again, it was just platonic. She circulated with a lot of men. Nobody thought anything of it, but uh, she dated uh, a, a, a few men in the mid sixties, but you got to remember just because of who she was, the dating pool was kind of a limited, you know, she could be able to dating Jacqueline Kennedy. Are you kidding? So there were, uh, she, Jackie, in fact, said something that was quite funny. She said, I can't very well marry a dentist from New Jersey. It would clearly have to be somebody of sufficient stature and, uh, you know, and wealth. And uh, boy, there are very few people who kind of uh, fit that bill. So that's a long answer, but uh, she dated a little bit and uh, in early, late 67, early 68, she also dated a guy named Roswell Gilpatrick, who was the uh, deputy defense secretary in the Kennedy administration. He was much older than she was, had been divorced three or four times, had some baggage, that kind of thing. And in the end, uh, she chose Onassis, uh, most likely after Bobby's assassination, because Onassis uh, had uh, plenty of security, uh, more money than uh, anybody, and uh, she needed, in 1968, she needed both of those very badly. It's just so fascinating, the exploration you take in this book of all of these relationships, because each one is so different from the last. And yeah, yeah like you say, I mean, we just forget that she's 34 years old, 35. Like, I mean, uh, it's such a young age to be thrust back in the dating pool after a terrible tragedy. And then you're trying to figure your life out. And it's just it's wild. And trying to do all of that in the spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, oof, it's just awful to even imagine. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. just thought that was really interesting, your exploration of that in this book. Um, so what is the main thing that in this period of Jackie's life, you really want your readers, your listeners to the podcast to take away about Jackie? Well, that's a really good question. You know, to me, I think uh, this was a woman who knew early on, she was just extremely well-educated, spoke several languages, was just extraordinarily uh, erudite, had vast, wide-ranging interests, everything from uh, art and literature to film to you know, museums and fashion and just everything. She was not your typical, uh, not your typical American woman in that, uh, again, just of her, her background and her upbringing and everything. She was just fascinating uh, in that regard. But all that aside, she was just a single mom with two kids uh, trying to kind of, uh, you know, juggle all of that. And Ray, the most important thing after the assassination to her, in addition to uh, uh, propping up her late husband's image, as we talked about, uh, easily the most important thing in her life was raising Caroline and John, uh, making sure they were safe, 
making sure they got a decent, well-rounded, a grounded education. Uh, to her, nothing else mattered. She was a really good mom. That was so important to her. And for all the people who were, you know, uh, looked at her hair and her fashion and who she went out with and this and that, they didn't really notice what kind of a mother she was. She was just a really good mom. She was just a lioness who watched after her cubs uh, with an eagle eye. And the fact that obviously her, her husband had been killed, uh, she had lost a couple of kids uh, prior to that, obviously, Patrick in uh, August of 63, and they had a stillborn daughter uh, in 1956, I think. Uh, she was very sensitive to the security of her children. She did a wonderful job in raising them. If you look at, and the proof of that, obviously, is if you look at uh, Caroline Kennedy uh, today, ambassador to Australia, prior to that, ambassador to Japan, patron of the arts, uh, this and that, just a very well-balanced, wonderful uh, woman. Uh, John, of course, we know uh, his life ended uh, all too soon and all too tragically, but he was on the arc of what would have been certainly a very interesting uh, career as well. He was a very forced, again, son of John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy, a very humble guy. He had all the money in the world. He could do whatever he wanted. He rode, I when I, I saw him on the subway once in Manhattan, he's riding the subway. Can you imagine? He was just a normal guy trying to just live a normal life. I think all of that, Caroline and John, is a reflection of the fact that they had a mother who, yes, world famous, yes, followed everywhere, photographed everywhere. Nevertheless, a mother who doted on her children as any mother would and made sure they had uh, the best uh, upbringing possible. And again, the safest upbringing possible. She was just very, very concerned for their safety and well-being. And she had good reason to. Mm -hmm. I love that answer. I'm a mom, a young mom of two kids too. And although, thank God, I haven't had near the tragedy or, and I hope I never do. It's like, I can't understand, but I can always empathize with her story. And it's just incredible. So I just love that answer. And I couldn't agree more, truly. Well, everybody, you do not want to miss out on both of these wonderful books, as well as Paul's podcast. So I will directly link all of these in the description of this episode, as well as his Twitter account, so you can keep up to date with him. Paul, I truly, truly appreciate you speaking with me today. Well, Allison, it's a great honor for me, and I uh, greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'm a fan of yours, uh, <laughs> too. You. And uh, I hope to chat uh, again. So thank Absolutely. you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate it five stars and write a positive written review. You know that helps the show so much. Also, if you have any Kennedy-loving friends and family in your life, please share the show with them, and uh, that would be great. Also, I'm sure you've noticed I'm doing episodes mostly bi-weekly right now just because I have a lot going on, which if you want to follow along with all the things I have going on, uh, follow my Instagram at Kennedy Dynasty. But I try to release more than bi-weekly, but at this point, for just a couple more months, it'll probably be bi-weekly. So, just so you keep up and you know when an episode is available, make sure you're subscribed because that is the best way. It will drop right in your little podcast app or wherever you listen, and you'll know it's there. So, that's the best way to stay up to date and know that you have listened to all the episodes. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Come on and vote for Kennedy. Vote for Kennedy. Keep America strong. Just keep throwing up.
Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and I host the Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other podcast. You can find us at politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. We are your home for edifying, provocative, and fun discussions among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of screamers and extremists dominating the conversation and you want to join us and take some of that space back, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you appreciate some nuance and just having a little fun, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. And remember, we're real easy to find. It's politicsandreligion.us. Hope to see you soon. We'd love to have you join the conversation on talking politics and religion without killing each other.